You've always had what it takes to make it happen. And we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. Radical Personal Finance is 100% listener-supported and listener-funded. For details on how you can get involved, please go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Today on the show, I bring you a much-awaited interview with investment guru extraordinaire, Meb Faber. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today is Tuesday, April 7, 2015. And today I bring you a show with Meb Faber. Meb is the author of multiple books, and he is much acclaimed for being both knowledgeable and expert. I shouldn't say both. I should he's acclaimed for being knowledgeable, expert, but most importantly, clear and direct and honest. kind of challenging and many people feel it's very challenging to find someone in the investment world who's a straight shooter but meb has a reputation for being a straight shooter and i think you're really going to enjoy this interview it's pretty hardcore uh with some respects but it's not going to be over your head if you're new to the topic of investing i tried to very much focus our discussion on content that would be helpful but not overly technical uh, if we want to get more overly technical, I may have to have Meb back in the future, as you'll hear in today's interview. Uh, but I think you'll enjoy hearing about his own personal philosophy on life, his own story, and how he came to be in the investment business. Pay careful attention to some of the lessons that I teach every day here on Radical Personal Finance and see if you pick them up unprompted in his story. Meb, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you making time to be with us today. Great to be here, and thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this chat because you're one of the most requested guests from the audience. I've had several people write to me from the audience say, please, please, please get, uh, get Meb Faber on the show. So, so you're, you're well, among friends. Looking forward to it. I'd like to kick it off with just a, a quick intro to yourself. How on earth did you wind up in the investment business? What was your path? Well, somewhat meandering. You know, like uh, like many, my career started out, my undergrad was biotech and engineering, and I had taken a year off after undergrad. When I say year off, I meant not going straight to grad school for a PhD in biotech, which was the original plan, but took a year off to work as a biotech equity analyst. And this was at a pretty fun time for markets, meaning a little bubbly. This was the year 2000 when not only were you having a stock market bubble, but also uh, a lot of excitement going around in biotech and sequencing the genome. And so after about a year of that, I said, well, this is way too interesting. I haven't really prepared, ready to go back to grad school yet. 
and commit to five years of, of that sort of uh, study. Let's let me let me try this for another year and see how it goes. And I was taking grad classes at night down the road in Hopkins, so I was in D.C. But it uh, I kept gravitating further away from the biotech and more towards the quant world of investing in finance and some of the little decisions you make at the time that seemed very minor turned out to be you know larger forks in the road and next thing you know uh your career becomes a hobby and vice versa were you working as an equity analyst for a mutual fund at the time i did it was a well it was both it was like many shops a more traditional investment advisor but also ran a mutual fund that was focused on the biotech space and pretty interesting because not a lot of the etfs had been uh, as prevalent as they are today, you know, late nineties, there was only a few. And so this move towards finer granularity and all sorts of interesting new products that the ETF space has spawned didn't really exist yet, but, but many of the challenges of having a sector focus or a particular market focus were certainly, um, became apparent to me, you know, as the biotech index went down, I don't remember, 60-70% in the 2000 bear market was fascinating uh to to watch, painful of course for for many, but it uh it was a good intro into into sort of the world of managing money uh but also stock picking and and all sorts of other other lessons learned. So did you learn, you didn't have a history in investing. Did you then go from there and learn on the job working for various firms? Or did you kind of pull out of the world, sit down with a stack of books, study, 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 and then go back into the professional investment world? Probably like many growing up, chatting with my parents and friends and always had an interest in investing. And and certainly throughout high school and college, very strong hobbyist in the sense, you know, reading as much as you could, getting caught up in, in the fun of the bubble in the 90s, certainly. And since that time, a lot of self-taught. You know, I, I didn't go to business school. I did participate in a few of the designations, but those largely because I thought the books were interesting and it would be fun to read the source material anyway. But but no traditional business school or MBA sort of sort of background, you know, pretty much pretty much all uh, all self taught, which has its pluses and minuses. The pluses, of course, that you don't have any sort of preordained belief system. The minuses uh, are that you go down ten thousand dead end roads that probably would have been a lot easier with certain mentors or you know curriculums, but. Uh, but it's been a been a fun ride the whole way. And now you run Cambria Investments. Could you share a little bit about what you guys do? And you're known for being a writer as well. Could you share just a little bit about what you do and, and the books that you write? We started Cambria in 2006. And my partner, Eric Richardson, comes from somewhat of a legal investment banking VC background. And so pretty complimentary because my background at, by the time 06 came around was mostly in research portfolio management. And we decided we wanted to start an investment advisor. Didn't really know exactly what we wanted to be 
kind of when we grew up, you know, years, years down the line knew that we would, we wanted to start uh, a couple private funds, which we did private hedge funds. So we started two of those, but also started managing individual accounts. The writing very much was somewhat of a fortuitous accident. Uh, I had published my one and only academic paper almost by accident. And after that, the, the started blogging and writing and that initial experiment really became a, uh, a um, an ongoing affair where it was, it was benefited me vastly more in many ways to share my thoughts and research with people around the world and have them, you know, being a quant can often be a, a lonely pursuit. You're not talking to management all day. You're not out there kicking the tires of companies and talking to suppliers and all that goes with being a fundamental analyst that, which is what I used to do as a biotech guy, but being a quant, it's much more uh, singular. And so the ability to interact via the internet or Twitter now or blogging and writing articles and white papers and books has enabled me to, to really expand the network of, of brilliant people that you know have criticized and constructively built upon a lot of the work we've published. Uh, so it's been a pretty cool way. And, and going back to 06, I'd certainly, would, if had you told me five, ten years later I'd be uh, writing as much as I had, I would, I would certainly <laughs> say you're, you're crazy. As much as we like to think that we plan our path and plan our life out, sometimes it just more happens that things open up as we go through them, right? <laughs> well, the funny story about the white paper actually is that it was – I was going through one of these designations called the CMT, which stands for Certified Market Technician for those listening, which is somewhat of the technical analysis equivalent of the CFA and three-level program. And level three, much uh, they used to have and have reinstated a option to not take the test but to write a paper. And at that time, there's nothing I wanted to do less than take a test. Right, especially right. with a lot of material I didn't necessarily believe in. So I threw in an abstract at the last minute because they were closing down the essay possibility. And I said, what in the world could I possibly write about? I've never written a finance paper. So it was, it became this trend following paper that we then published in the journal of wealth management, which strangely enough is now the number two most downloaded white paper on the social science research network with which is where all the academic academic nerds like me publish their research so it was kind of this really strange like you mentioned uh fortuitous um, event that just because i didn't want to take a test it ended up being a very popular white paper that people people really seem to resonate with people wow the radical personal finance community is not built up of hardcore – we're not hardcore quants. We're not hardcore investors. Rather, we're more kind of normal, everyday people with, abo- with an above-average interest in personal finance. And in, one of my goals with the show is to bridge the gap between very technical, complex, in-depth uh, investment conversations and overly simplified uh, just – whitewashed personal finance advice and kind of fill in that middle ground there. That's where this question is coming from. 
you are making a living and have made a name for yourself with investment advice. And yet the common perception in the personal finance world is, well, no one can do that successfully. <laughs> How would you discuss what you actually do professionally, the value that you actually bring, and how would you defend the money that you earn and the value that you bring your investors in the mainstream uh, world of personal finance, which believes that there's very little value that individuals can bring to an investment portfolio? Boy, that's an open-ended question. Okay, so background on our firm is that we run now five public ETFs, so public funds that are pretty broad spectrum. And the goal for us is to disrupt the traditional high-fee investment world. So a lot of the basic ideas and strategies that exist in mutual funds and hedge funds, we want to be able to offer for lower cost. Uh, so we have ETFs that range from anywhere from a 0% management fee up to about 0.69. So half the cost on average of, of the average mutual fund. And so when you think about investing, and this is now going back to your question, it becomes a very personal type of uh, way to think about the world. And the challenges with this I actually had a, a long, meandering 45-minute Uber conversation with, as I was Ubering around stuck in traffic in L.A. yesterday. <laughs> but but it, it highly depends on the person. And the, and the challenge, so take my mother, for example. You know, she is completely content and happy and sleeps at night <clears throat> having money in CDs and low-risk investments, could not care less about being exposed to to broader markets, regardless of the additional return, um, you know, and there's other people that like to think they have higher capacity for risk tolerance, et cetera. The biggest problem comes when um, most people haven't studied enough history, and this isn't just individuals. This is professionals, professional RIAs. This is why 2008 was such a big problem. For most investors, uh, professional as well as retail, is because certain market style events like that happened in 2008 hadn't happened a long, in a long time. And so it had been mostly purged from people's memories. So the point I'm trying to make here is that people often take an investment approach and even try to be honest with what they think their, their pain points and risk tolerances are. And so as an example, I say, yeah, you know, I can... I'm okay. I have a long-term time horizon. I can lose 50% and I'll just rebalance and it'll be okay. And then what happens is it turns into a bear market and someone loses 50% of their money and it's a totally different experience than what they may have thought it would have been like. And the famous Mike Tyson quote is that, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so that correlates pretty highly often with what's going on in the world. So if you have a generic asset allocation portfolio, that's probably great the way you set it up and have you know X percent of this and Y percent of this and you're a buy and hold investor, you got to realize that at some point that's, that's going to have a fair amount of losses. And the unfortunate reality is that there's only two possible states for your portfolio. It's all-time highs or in some form of drawdown. 
And for, for most people, you spend the majority of the time in some sort of drawdown from your peak, uh, peak value. So it, it, the emotional side can be very challenging. And so what we try to do, we try to wrap strategies that my number one criteria is it's something I want to invest in. Certainly, there's a lot of companies out there. Vanguard is a perfect example where you can get exposure to markets or portfolios for very cheap. And we never will offer those. The only types of strategies and portfolios we offer are areas that we think we can do it a little bit better or we think it's an area that doesn't exist yet that, that someone should, should offer. And uh, so we have five funds out. We have about three or four more that will eventually launch probably never much more than many more than 10 funds. Um, and we can, I'm happy to get into the research or, or ideas on any of the particular strategies or wherever this conversation is going to go. But, but the, one of the biggest takeaways for investing is that it becomes highly personal. And the biggest challenge with that is that the personal depends largely on your time frame. So the investor, average investor in Japan who went through the biggest bubble we've ever seen in the 1980s in their stock market and for the past 20 years has lost money, last two years excluded, would have a very different perspective on what it means to be an investor than someone in the U.S. uh, or someone in Russia right now or Greece or Brazil. And one of the biggest takeaways for for the listeners, you know, is to get some historical perspective. And one of my favorite all-time investing books is Triumph of the Optimist. And it's expensive. It's about a hundred bucks, but a fun coffee table book that lets you look back and see, hey, what's what has happened in markets for the past 130 years and is just to at least see what's possible. And it's hard to think about all the potential outcomes, but we would argue fairly necessary because crazy things can happen in markets. And and one of the better phrases is normal, normal market returns are extreme. (laughs) So how does a normal investor balance a sense of long-term optimism, but with a healthy skepticism and desire for self-protection? There's a couple of good rules of thumb that, that I like to go by. And for the investors on the, on the podcast who aren't familiar, there's a difference between what we call nominal returns, which are if you see that the S&P was, say, up 10% last year, that's what we call nominal. And then if you subtract out inflation, and let's call that 2% right now, that's a little high. It's probably closer to 1%. But we'll use an example, 2% your real returns would have been 8%. And those are the returns that really matter, what we call returns you can eat. You can't really spend inflation inflation dollars. Ask anyone that's been in Zimbabwe or Argentina where there's been very high inflation because it eats away. So if you have a 10% return, but you have 10% inflation, your return's zero, your real return. And so it's important to think in those terms. It's a little challenging because most people don't really think that much about inflation. And the U.S. has been tame for the past, what, 35 years. Right. But for the older crowd listening, they remember the 70s when inflation was high single digits, low double digits. And it's a totally different atmosphere. So a couple of rule of thumbs. One is that 
the re- historical return on stocks, real returns, so this is net of inflation around the world has been around 5% per year. The average return for bonds is a little below, it's probably 1.5%, but I like to round up and call it 2 just because it makes the rule of thumb easier. And then for T-bills or short-term bonds, it's it's less than 1, but we round up to 1. So we call it 5 one rule. So that's what you should be able to expect on stocks, bonds, and bills over time and historically. The biggest problem with that in the U.S. did better than that since 1900, so that I think the U.S. was up above 6% real returns, called 65 and then you add in the inflation, and you, then you get to that historical 10% number that most peop- people expect and are familiar with. But there was countries, if you were born in Austria, you had a 0% real return in stocks. So one of the reasons that it's important to be global in your thinking, uh, because if you concentrate in any one country or environment and the U.S. counts, you're exposing yourself to unneeded concentration. So if you put together a portfolio and you say, look, Meb, just I want to build the best portfolio to outperform in any market environment. And we actually just published a book on this topic about a month ago called Global Asset Allocation, a survey of the world's 10 or 15 best investment allocations or something like that. Three bucks on Amazon. If you uh, for listening to this podcast, if you go to freebook.mebfaber.com, I'll send you a free copy. Uh, you got to promise to read it though, and it's short, about a hundred pages. But we looked at the most famous asset allocations from the most famous gurus around the world. So when I say guru, I mean that as a compliment. So people like David Swenson, who run the Yale Endowment. Mohammed El Aryan, who ran PIMCO and the Harvard Endowment. Rob Arnott runs research affiliates. And then a lot of other people that would be familiar with probably your readers like Dr. Bernstein, Mark Faber, Larry Swedrow. And all these people recommend portfolio allocations. So they'll say you need to put X amount in U.S. stocks and X amount in foreign stocks and this much in 10-year bonds and this much in treasury bonds, inflation bonds and X percent in real estate and X percent in commodities. And what we found is that we looked at all these allocations back to the 70s. And as long as you had some of each of the three main pillars, so we'll call those stocks global, bonds global, and then real assets. And real assets we define as commodities, real estate, and uh, treasury inflation protected securities. People call those TIPs. As long as you have a little in, in gold, we'll add gold in under the commodity label. As long as you have some of those three main ingredients, the exact percentages don't matter that much. And almost all the allocations end up in the same place. Now, some do better in the 70s. So the ones that had more gold or inflationary style assets did better. And then, but typically the portfolios that did great in that market environment did poor in the dish disinflationary 80s and growth of the 90s. So you want a portfolio that balances over time, but but the exact percentages don't matter that much. So there's a huge takeaway in the book and that we said, all right, what if you could go back to 1972 in a time machine and say, what was the best performing strategy over the period? And so it, it was Muhammad El-Aryan's strategy, a nice allocation that is very endowment-like, meaning 
It had a higher percentage in global equity-like investments, so stocks, real estate, but it also had exposure to commodities and a little bit in bonds. So it was the best performing strategy. However, if you layered on the average fees of a mutual fund, so 1.25%, it takes it down to near where the worst performing allocation was. And in this case, it was the permanent portfolio, which isn't a bad portfolio, but because it has so much in cash, it's naturally less volatile and has lower returns. But if you add on the average uh, fee of an advisor who invests in mutual funds, you would have transformed the best performing allocation into worse than the worst. Wow. And so that's a pretty stunning takeaway in my mind that people spend probably 90% of their time investing, thinking about how much should I have in stocks? Are stocks overvalued? Are they going to crash? What about what's going on in Europe? Are bonds in a bubble? Oil just went from 100 to 50. You know, that's what they spend 90% of their time doing because it's exciting and fun and makes good TV. But the boring blocking and tackling of, look, you want to pay as little as possible for these types of buy and hold investments. And the vast majority of what my company does is actually not buy and hold. But because I said in our first book, the Ivy portfolio, I said, if you're going to do buy and hold investing, by definition, you're not doing much. You're buying and holding. So you should pay as little as possible for that. Right. So there's plenty of good options out there, Vanguard's the world. We actually just launched uh, the first ever ETF in the U.S. It's called Global Asset Allocation, ticker's GAA, that has a permanent 0% management fee. So it's not totally free because it owns 29 underlying ETFs. Uh, that cover all the main asset classes, three of which are, are Cambria funds. So the all-in cost, it's the lowest cost asset allocation ETF. It's at 0.29%. But that's a good example of kind of you know us putting our money where our mouth is. Says, look, if you're going to do buy and hold, you should pay as little as possible on fees. And, and its close cousin, of course, is taxes. So being very mindful of... Uh, taxes and harvesting losses for a portfolio, as well as uh, you know trying to put as much of your investments in tax deferred sort of accounts. Uh, but but it's but it's interesting in this particular example with this book that what you pay and the boring things you do on a daily basis end up influencing your return much more over time than what the asset allocation actually is. So there's about three or four different directions I could go after that. Uh, many questions <laughs> emerged from that, but I'm going to ask the more uh, pointed and perhaps provocative one first. If you are building a structure of, a, of your personal company that's based upon charging the lowest fees possible, how do you hope to build your own personal wealth to enrich yourself? Um. And that's a great sideways move to this conversation, but but interesting <laughs> enough. You know, uh, being I spend a lot of time thinking about and being a, a biotech guy. I, I used to read a lot of behavioral psychology, and so behavioral 
side of investing has always been fascinating to me because if you if you go down the list, for, especially for individuals, this also applies to institutions of the biggest mistakes they make. Number one across the board, not even a question, is getting your emotions involved in your investing and, and messing around and mucking up and doing dumb things that all of us do. Right. And it's easy because people chase returns. They buy at tops when it's exciting. They sell at market bottoms because they can't take it anymore. And the challenge of truly understanding those biases, and I have most of them. I'm very overconfident. We I all think, do, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think I'm, I'm, you know, smarter than everyone in the room. I, I'm a better driver. Uh, I, and then I have other ones that I've learned over time, mostly by making mistakes and painfully. I take way too much risk if given the opportunity. Uh, I'll use, you know, much, much more aggressive trading that, that is prudent. So number one is, understanding your behavioral biases, but, but a close cousin of that, you know, all of us spend so much time optimizing the, how do I make money? How do I control my personal finances? But very few people spend a lot of time thinking, how can I best optimize how I spend money to actually translate into happiness? And most people, you know, what they, what actually creates happiness for people is usually not how a lot of people spend money. And there was a pretty good book out on this topic recently. I want to say it was called Happy Money. But it, but it goes through all the research and says, look, what is what actually makes people really happy? And it's not shocking. It's things like, you know, uh, sharing with other people and, and, and donating and being charitable to other people, um, having time to give yourself uh, personal time and, and experiences rather than purchases. Uh, you know, so everyone thinks they want that Corvette, but does that actually make you happy versus, you know, maybe a trip to Hawaii with your family or having the time to go to your son's baseball game? And so as you think about a lot of those things, and I try to apply it to our company as well. So Cambria is small. We have four people. We're going to probably have to double that in the next year. But but we've built the company to be uh, somewhat frugal and prudent and at the same time say, look, we only want to offer strategies we ourselves would invest in. So I have 100% of my investable net worth in our ETFs. So I think it's very important to uh, eat your own cooking. Uh, a lot of managers don't. And one of my recommended first questions to for individuals when they hire a money manager or think about investing in a mutual fund is say, what do you do with your own money? Tell me how you invest your own money. Because there's a lot of people out there that will give advice, but at the same time with their own money, maybe doing something completely different. And there's actually a lot of research that Morningstar and other shops have done that shows that the mutual funds and funds where the managers have more invested in their own fund perform much better over time. So how do we make money on the, so of the five ETFs we manage, we manage almost $500 million. We have a couple private funds. Our company is quite nicely profitable. 
But my goal in life is not to, there's two types of companies on Wall Street. There's one type, which is how much can I charge and get away with it? So maximizing their earnings. And there is a lot of companies set up like that. If investors think Wall Street is built for your benefit, you're sorely mistaken at every turn. You know, the companies are built to, to try to extract uh, uh, fees from you. And then there's the other types of companies, which we would like to think we're a part of, which are the sort of vanguards of the world, which say, you know what, how little can I charge and get away with it and still run a business and it be sustainable and successful? And so, you know, we've built what we think are five really great funds that most expensive is 0.69%. And that's because it owns what we think are the 10 cheapest countries in the world. So there are extra costs in owning <laughs> stocks in like Greece and Russia and Brazil. And in the, the zero percent fund, uh, percent fund, the beauty of that fund is we, is it doesn't cost me much. So I, if no one invested in that fund and it was just for my friends and family, I still would have done it because it's not going to cost me much. But the beauty of that fund, and it only launched in December, is that it could easily get to 10 or $20 billion and it not be remotely difficult to run because it's a buy and hold style strategy. So it will eventually make money at some point. And there's one even, and this starts to get into the weeds a little bit for your readers, but a lot of ETFs out there and mutual funds can even go one step further. And Vanguard does that. and you can actually lend out the securities in the fund and return what's called the short lending um, revenue to the shareholders of the ETF. So Vanguard actually has ETFs that have a low fee, but because they return the short lending to the shareholders, the ETF is actually free. Not only is it free, it's actually paying you a slight amount to own it. So it'll have essentially a negative expense ratio, which is actually pretty incredible. It really is. (laughs) You know, this day and age, I mean, you go back to the 70s and 80s, many investors will remember this, mutual funds with 2 or 3% uh, fees per year plus 5% sales charge plus a a 12B1 fee every year. And you you could have funds that would have a cost per year of owning it of 4% four percentage points. And if you go back to my old uh, you know, rule of thumb, remember stocks are going to return about 5%. Well, you know, and you have something that's, that's going to charge you 4% a year. It's, it's, it's a wonderful time to be an investor. Never has there been a more awesome time. And, and we talk a lot about this with the robo-advisors that have come out that will do your asset allocation for you and charge you Schwab is now nothing. They'll charge you 0%. So it's a really exciting time to be an investor. Never, never has there been an easier way to invest in, uh, in assets all around the world. I, I feel like you ask these really simple sounding questions and then I end up <laughs> just blabbing for like 10 minutes. So I apologize if I'm a little uh, verbose this morning. I've had probably too much coffee. <laughs> I try to seek out people who are interesting and knowledgeable and that I try to tee up questions that are just provocative, provocative enough to, to get you going on something, but to let you run wherever you run. And I just sit back and listen. So you're doing exactly what I hoped you would do. Um, we have about 10 minutes left and there are two themes that I would like to explore 
uh, with you uh, in the time remaining. The first theme is how to put in place a professional type of investment policy process for an individual. And here's where I'm trying to bridge the gap between personal finance and portfolio management. Uh, A good portfolio manager is always going to have their investment policies planned out in advance before beginning their, you know, before even running the portfolio. You're going to have it spelled out. Uh, Here's what we do. Here's what we're planning to do. Uh, And, you know, there might be some leeway in that or there might not be. But as individuals, it's a rare individual investor or it's a rare person who in managing their own money has a clearly defined set of goals, has a clearly defined set of, uh, you know, of benchmarks of here's what I'm trying to do and I've thought through all the different strategies. How would you advise somebody to sit down, look at their own situation, their own financial plan and build out a personal investment policy statement and plan for themselves, taking into account the world we live in in 2015, the global fears with currency fluctuations, the fears of government excess, and uh, all of just the things that are on the news every day. How would you guide someone to sit down and do that for themselves? Okay. uh, First, I'll make some broad advice and then go through a few steps that I think are important. So one, again, I encourage you to read my book. It's free. I'll send you a copy. Freebookmebfaber.com. Freebook.mebfaber.com. And understand that once you build a nice diversified portfolio, you can really go on back to living your life and not worry about a lot of the things that most people spend most of their time worrying about. However, if you want to go a step further and say, look, I really want to learn a lot more about what's possible, the history of investing. You need to become more, you know, a a student of history. And Triumph the Optimist is a good starting point. There's lots of great books out there that can help you understand what's happened in the past and what's possible. So that the biggest problem investors have, one of the list of four things. So one is having unrealistic unrealistic expectations and not understanding what has happened in the past and that pertains to personal relationships too right where the biggest problem between people comes if someone has an expectation that's not met right in, in whatever way and so one so understand a little history have reasonable expectations two go out and try to pay as little as possible for the execution of that portfolio and understand what you're investing in. Uh, and three, stay out of your own way. Once you've set it up and say, look, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper, if and when, for example, this portfolio goes down 25%, what is my plan for that? How am I going to react? Am I going to rebalance into the ones that are down the most? Am I going to liquidate my entire account? At least go through the mental process of trying to think, what that would be like. And lastly, some of the things we talk about the world right now is that it's actually a pretty tough opportunity set where U.S. stocks, we look at valuations and across almost any valuation metric, and valuation is somewhat of a blunt tool. Most people like to think about investments as hey, this is a great investment, I'm going to make a ton of money, I'm buying, I'm a bull, I'm long, or I'm out, I want to sit in cash, it's, the market's going to crash, 
the Fed's an idiot, the government's doing X, Y, Z, and it's a very binary decision. Well, the challenge is we look at long-term P.E. ratios. We call them the Schiller CAPE ratio. So it's just nothing more than looking at 10 years of valuations for a long-term perspective. And historically, the U.S. has been around 16 and a half, 17. It's around 28 right now. Now, we don't think that's a bubble. It hit a high of 45 in December 1999, but it's also hit a low of five at, at times in history. And not rocket science, but the less you pay for something like the stock market, so when you're buying the stock market, when it's at single-digit P-E ratios, your future returns are much better than when you buy it when it's at high P-E ratios like now. And so we expect U.S. stocks to return instead of that historical, you know, 10%, 8 to 10% nominal, 5% real, we're expecting them to return only about 3% nominal, close to 1% or 0% real. Now, that's not exciting, and that's not, and we're not saying they're going to crash. They could just go sideways for a while. But one of the biggest mistakes U.S. investors make, and they may actually make it everywhere around the world, is they have what's called a home country bias. So most U.S. investors listening to this podcast, I guarantee this, I've done it, the speech probably 15 times where I, I pull the crowd where I'm giving a talk and I say how much of your stocks, so ignore bonds, real estate, everything else, so just your stocks, how much are in the U.S.? And the answer is almost always right around 70%. Well, the U.S. as a percentage of global stocks is only half. So at a minimum, if you were a John Bogle, diehard, Vanguard indexer, you should have half of your stock allocation in foreign stocks. But no one does, and they don't do that because it's uncomfortable. Right. They don't do that for the same reasons. You know, I'm a Broncos fan that I don't cheer for the Patriots. Right? It's it's you're what you're used to. And so, going back to the opportunity set of what the world looks like, the bad news is U.S. stocks are expensive. The good news is is that foreign stocks are actually quite cheap. So their PE ratio for foreign developed and emerging is right around 15, which is a little below average over time. But there's actually a lot of countries that are incredibly cheap. So it's no surprise to people to hear this, but it's simply the ones that have gone down the most and that are in the news almost every day. So most of Europe is very cheap particularly emerging Europe, uh, so the pigs, Greece, Spain, Italy, Portugal, Hungary, Czech Republic, but also uh, places like Russia and Greece uh, and Brazil. And the challenge, of course, with global investing is you want to make sure you're diversified. So you don't want to just go own one country, even though Greece and Russia are some of the cheapest in the database ever. You have a, this year is a perfect example if you just bought Russia, you'd be up almost 30% this year to date. Now, granted, it got crushed in 2014, but you'd be up almost it's the best performing stock market in the world, I think, or close to it this year. But if you had bought Greece, you'd be down 15%. So having a broad-based sort of diversified portfolio across global assets is important. And I think one of the bigger ones is tilting it away from, from the United States. So Again, another long-winded answer, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things that people should do 
but particularly have a global focus, set up your policy portfolio, understand what's possible, and then pay as little, and then go on living your life. Don't worry about it anymore. (laughs) How would you invest to build personal wealth for yourself if I put a restriction on you that you were not permitted to invest in any publicly traded securities? Well, that's interesting. So no stocks, bonds, no, or, pu- no publicly, none, not on the publicly traded market. You could do private investment with, uh, you know, in a, in a in a company, but not if it's publicly traded. Well, the the biggest way that most individuals can build their net worth is honestly to invest in themselves. So there's the little personal finance decisions, like the really basic stuff, like paying down high fee credit card debt, of course, just basic things like that. But investing in yourself so that A, you earn more, B, that if you're an entrepreneur, you know, the business you're building could be worth vastly more than any investments you may have. I don't, so outside of my my companies, and I'm, in, I'm involved in three, I don't do hardly any private investing. The challenge is that I know personally, I don't like illiquidity and having money locked up somewhere on the private side for me personally is a bit uh, challenging. Now, that doesn't mean I wouldn't start doing more of it or have any expertise, but it's a area that I think um, people can certainly, I mean, and you see more and more of this with the ability for Congress passing all these new rules for investors to be able to invest in crowdfunded startups. We actually did a crowdfund round for my company last year. But for people to invest in a lot of these startups, it's a wonderful time, but it's certainly buyer beware. And it's like buying a house. You know, it housing in general is not a great investment. It basically keeps up with inflation over time. But, you know, buying that killer deal in a great neighborhood that you know better than anyone else is a great way to make money. Buying a speculative condo in Miami when you've never been to Miami is probably a horrible idea. So same thing applies to private companies. You know, if you know your brother or your cousin or someone down the street who is building this brilliant business and you want to be involved, that's totally okay. If you're going to go on some of these uh, crowdfunded sites and not have any expertise in that area and just start throwing down $10,000 chunks into a lot of private companies, will that, that end up with a good outcome? Probably not. So there's, uh, there's a lot of ways to go in this kind of topic, but it's, uh, it's taking away the public market certainly makes it a little more challenging. <laughs> and I'm thankful that we have such efficient public markets where there are just such easy options as we, t- as we talked about earlier for the average person. Um, Two minutes, in less than two minutes here, because I want to be, uh, I've got to, we've got to quit on time here, but I want to ask, I put out in our private for the supporters of the show, the patrons of the show, uh, some questions that they wanted to ask you. Uh, just a couple of, a few quick hit questions. You can answer them in a sentence or two, uh, or if you like to take longer, that's fine, but we just got a couple of quick minutes. How would you recommend balancing long-term buy and hold versus the short-term risk of, of correction? So... One is, is, is by diversifying. Two, we didn't really get into it in this podcast, but my 
background in much of what I do is tactical and trend following. So thinking about how to avoid long bear markets. Our, our first book, The Ivy Portfolio, we've written four books now, and, and the first white paper really touched on this topic more of, of is there anything you can do to be tactical and, and try to avoid long bear markets? And it turns out there, there are some things. Does that mean you'll miss any short-term gyrations? Probably not. But the long-term 40, 60, 80% bear markets, which have happened in pretty much every stock market around the world, there's some things you can do there with very, very simple trend-following approaches or tactical approaches. In that same vein, there's a class, there's a strategy class called Manage Futures that we think is one of the best diversifiers. I don't run a managed futures fund, uh, but there are a number of public options. Unfortunately, most tend to be kind of expensive. We may end up having to launch one, not really because I want to, but because there's not a lot that, that are as cheap as we'd like them to be. That is a wonderful asset class strategy to diversify a traditional portfolio and one of the few that are that are really good there. So, it, uh, one's diversification, two, you can apply some tactical models, and three, there are some sort of what people call liquid alternatives that can help to uh, diversify a portfolio even further beyond the traditional stocks, bonds, real asset, asset classes. Yeah, I had wanted to go into that, but we'll have to do another another show or something. Cause yeah, we'll come, I'll come back in six months and we'll talk about all the all the other tactical ideas. That it would be it would be fun because that's that's kind of pedal of the nitty into the nitty gritty, uh, and I think it would be fun to go into some of the some of the strategies that can be employed. This is not as much fun now because it's been a <laughs> market and no no one remembers what a bear market's like. So it uh, once. Once the big bad bear shows up again, it's probably a, a little more timely, even though now is probably the time to be to be a little more cautious on things like U.S. stocks. Last one of the quick ones, uh, and I, I know this is uh, going to make you cringe, but I have to. Do you see, quote, the big one coming with all of the global money printing? Um, it's interesting. Normal, <laughs> normal bear markets are, are bear markets are normal, and right. so it is a normal thing to go through bear markets and, and understand that at one point, U.S. stocks lost almost ninety percent in the U.S. So in the depression, uh, I'll give you a stat that sounds kind of scary. If you look at the median stock in the S&P 500, so that's just the middle, the middle stock. And it's a, it's a way, bear, markets change over time. So in the late 90s, there was very widespread between the really expensive stuff, Cisco's of the world that were tech high flyers trading at huge valuations. But then most of the market was actually pretty reasonable in the late 90s. So you invested in dividend stocks, you didn't even have a bear market in 2000, 2003, but no one wanted dividend stocks then. 2008 was a different story. Everything went down. And so there will be, oh, so the stat I was going to give you, the median stock in the S&P 500 is at the highest price to sales ratio it's ever been. So, and this goes back to, let's call it the early 1960s. So it may have been more expensive before that, but over the past 50, 60 years. 
And that's not a great, you never want to hear things like that. If <laughs> right. you look at all the other U.S. stock valuation metrics, Tobin's Q, our CAPE ratio, um, Buffett's favorite, which is market cap to GDP, all those are trading at values that you say it's either as expensive as 1929 and 1999 or, or in the ballpark. So would a 30% or 50% drop surprise me? No. However, would the market going up another 40 or 50% surprise me either? No, because the only thing that's the difference between the valuation is what people are willing to pay. And people are willing to pay a little bit more when inflation is tame in this 1% to 4% safe zone of inflation. When inflation starts to tick up above 4%, which we don't have right now, but who knows with what's going on with global central banks, if inflation does start to tick up, that's when it really starts to affect what people are wanting to pay for stocks because the future is more uncertain, inflation eats away at earnings. And so that's when I, I think you could really start to see some challenges. But uh, predicting when the next bear market will occur is is much more challenging. But my, you know, on the on the red light sort of spectrum for traffic signal, you know, the valuations are already a yellow signal. And if and when the market goes below a long-term trend measure like the 200-day moving average or like a 10-month simple moving average, that in my mind would be would be the red flashing light. And, and I would say at that point, there's probably no reason whatsoever to own U.S. stocks. Uh, so will, will we have another bear market? Absolutely. When will that occur? I have no idea. <laughs> Welcome to the world of the markets, right? <laughs> well, this has been fun. Yeah, I wanted to get into, I had planned, if we had more time, I wanted to get into the 10 best days uh, myth that you wrote about in uh, one of your monthly publications a few years ago, but we'll have another chance. Mev, this has been awesome. Your website is mebfaber.com. The free book is freebook.mebfaber.com. Uh, and you're on Twitter. Is it at mebfaber? Yep. And is that the best place that you'd like people to follow you to keep in touch with your with your work? Sure. I thank you so much for making the time uh, to come on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Let's do it again sometime. Interesting to see the industry from an insider, eh? That's one of the things that I was really hoping to do when I started the show was to bring you, um, and be doing much more of it in days to come, bring you lots of, in some ways, inside access to people that are involved in the industry. Now... Fortunately for you, I can kind of filter a little bit. <laughs> That's probably why you you might get a little bit of a distorted view of the financial industry because I'm filtering ahead of inviting them on the show and trying to filter out the, uh, the good from the bad and invite the good on the show. And Meb certainly fits that bill. Uh, make sure to take advantage of his free book deal. Uh, again, it was freebook.medfavor.com. Also, make sure to check out his blog. Uh, he has a lot of his writing there and follow him on Twitter. He's very, Twitter. He's very active on Twitter, especially for those of you who are interested in it, the more of the technical science of investing. I think you're really going to enjoy uh, some of his content, some of his ideas. Notice also just the personal finance approach that he had. Uh, did you notice how he set his life up to be a life that he wants to live and it's not all about the money? Money matters. But it matters to a certain extent. And sometimes other things matter far more than money. Pay attention to your own life and make sure that you're putting the things in place that you need to have in place that will take you beyond money. 
Thank you to all of you who are supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, we are up to, let's see, as of today, we are up to 128 patrons listed there on Patreon and up to $1,351.50 per month. If that 128 number includes you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. If it doesn't include you, would you consider it including you? As little as a buck a month makes a big difference. If every member of this audience uh, contributed to the show at $2 a month, we would be at the $6,000 a month level that we need to keep advertising off of the show. And I would love to do that for you guys, but it's up to you. Uh, it's, it's kind of your mo- voting mechanism. I'm okay with either way. I, I, my strong preference is to keep the show ad-free. But uh, in order to do that, I need to, we need to get the, the number up to about $6,000 a month by June 1. So vote accordingly. Uh, and by the way, it's not all about me. I also have a bunch of goodies there for you you that I think you'll enjoy. Those questions were from today from Eb were from supporters of the show. That's one of many benefits. So see y'all tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's show. Please subscribe to the podcast with our free mobile app so you don't miss a single episode. Just search the app store on your device for Radical Personal Finance and you'll find our free app. If you have received value from the content of this show, please consider becoming a patron. Your financial support is how I pay the bills for the show and how I plan to grow our content. You can support the show with as little as a dollar a month or as much as you feel the content is worth. Details are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com or connect with the show on Twitter at RadicalPF and at Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.